Hello all and welcome yet again to another episode of the Nailed It Ortho Podcast. I am Dr. Cole. I am one of the hosts. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this high yield um, orthopedic surgery podcast to go over high yield topics. Yes, I did just say high yield twice there. Um, but also you are actually tuned into our OITE review series featuring myself and Dr. Spencer Woolwine where we just try to go over some of the high yield orthopedic in training exam surgery topics uh, just to get you prepared. So, um, I mean, without further ado, let's just go ahead and hop into today's episode. We are I'm talking a little bit more about the shoulder. So let's go. Our episode today is sponsored by Panacea Financial, a digital bank built for doctors by doctors. From medical student to attending, Panacea offers free checking and loan options just for physicians, including their PR and personal loan that gives you up to 75000 at an interest rate less than half of a credit card. Panacea Financial can also refinance your medical school debt with no maximums or help with commercial needs such as practice or surgery center buy-ins. Visit PanaceaFinancial.com today to learn how you can join the physicians nationwide who expect more from their bank. Panacea Financial is a division of the Primus member FDIC. And please, if you go, mention it, Nailed It Ortho in the How Did You Hear About Us section. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Uh, we are nearing the end here shortly, uh, but what is a reverse shoulder orthoplasty? So reverse is uh, kind of similar to... Uh, I mean, it's it's a reverse of what it's supposed to be. So the uh, humeral side is now going to turn into the cup-shaped glenoid, but the glenoid side now turns into the dome of the humeral head. And uh, that's essentially what the reverse uh, means. Um, the uh, glenoid base plate is... Uh, most commonly cementless and it is uh, kind of it's put in with screws into that really hard uh, subchondral scapular bone um, whereas the uh, humeral stem is where you put in that polyethylene socket and uh, you can have cemented or, or uh, uncemented uh, humeral stems as well so Remembering a reverse shoulder arthroplasty is a reverse of the normal shoulder articulation. And uh, what are some of the indications for a reverse? Yeah, so these are going to be like approximately humerus fractures that are like not that are not constructible, so they don't have anything a new way to get tuberosities that are healed or are fracture malunions or non-unions. Those may be a case where you'll do a reverse total shoulder arthroplasty. Patients with a rotator cuff tear arthropathy, again, no functioning rotator cuff. Um, so that'll be a reverse shoulder arthroplasty. Um, a uh, irreparable rotator cuff tears, a failed total shoulder arthroplasty, and as well as patients that have a lot of glenoid or uh, humeral bone loss. And, you know, reverse shoulder process, that's kind of one of the last things that you do for these, for these patients, you know. Um, but but there is one thing that is needed for a functioning reverse shoulder orthoplasty. So what what is that? I sorry, I was looking up pseudoparalysis and pseudoparesis because uh, ah, I'm trying to good. figure it out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I tried to look it up and like looked at 
Google didn't, it was very underwhelming and it just kind of just like corrected my, uh, my wording of pseudoparesis to pseudoparalysis and gave me a bunch of pseudoparalysis definitions. Yeah. And, um, were you able to find anything good? So it basically what's what one person had said is that, uh, Paralysis is a loss of motion and paresis is a decreased motion. So how they were defining it is pseudoparalysis is a loss of active motion without a defined neurologic injury. So they still have function of the muscle, but uh, it's not firing because of pain or some other reason so they have no active motion but they have passive motion of the shoulder and then pseudoparesis is similar in that they have decreased motion um and weak motion but it, they do still have motion and so uh, i don't know if that is an adequate uh definition uh one thing that reassured me was multiple sources have said that the uh, definitions for these are variable and uh, it depends on what text you read or what article you read. So uh, I don't think that we are the only ones that are confused on this topic. <laughs> yeah. um, but if anyone does have a better explanation of it, by all means, uh, please reach out to us or uh, direct us in a way that uh, can help us figure it out. So we pass on the best information possible to everybody listening. Yes, that'd be great. But moving along, we were talking about re reverse shoulder arthroplasty. Uh, and what is needed for a reverse shoulder arthroplasty is a functioning deltoid and adequate glenoid uh, and adequate humeral bone stock. Um, you can, uh, they do have massive uh, prosthetics for reverse shoulder arthroplasty for oncologic and other reasons. Um, but the key part is a functioning deltoid. They need to prove to you that they can move their deltoid before you do a reverse total shoulder in them. Um, and it all goes down to the biomechanics of a reverse total shoulder. And what are some of the important things to, to know for the biomechanics of a reverse? Yeah. So the design, um, you know, these reverse shoulder arthroplasties attempts to maximize the compressive forces and minimize the shear forces. And uh, Gramont changed uh, this glenoid component to a hemisphere with a medialized joint center rotation uh, plus stabilizing kind of the bone implant surface. Um, so that's kind of, you know, it's kind of hard to explain everything over, over a podcast. You know, a lot of these, you know, pictures are, uh, can help you out in learning a lot of this information. So I'd, I'd urge a lot of you to, you know, look up these these pictures and try to uh, see exactly what we're talking about. Um, but when we're talking about kind of the, that glenoid component, um, that glenoid component being changed, that uh, that hemisphere and that has a medial joint, um, medialized joint center of rotation. Now, what has medialization of the entire shoulder center of rotation be associated with? That is uh, associated with uh, scapular notching reduced internal rotation and a loss of shoulder uh, contour. And um, basically what that uh, 
means is, uh, especially with the loss of shoulder contour, I mean, we have our, our deltoid musculature giving our shoulders that kind of normal appearance. But if you medialize too far, then uh, one shoulder is going to look flatter on one side compared to the other. And uh, the implications of that uh, and one of the commonly tested parts of a reversed shoulder is that scapular notching that if the if you ream too far medial, you are only creating so much space for that inferior or medial portion of the humeral component to abut against the lateral uh, portion of the scapula and uh, you'll get that classic notching uh, shape on imaging. And um, part of that, uh, because the medialization has to do with the glenoid component, what are the kind of important things to remember about the glenoid component with the reverse total shoulder? Yeah, so an inferior position of the glenoid component helps decrease notching and gives a little bit more of a clearance between the greater tuberosity and the cracker uh, and the acromial arch. So inferior position helps decrease notching. Um, so obviously the opposite, if your glenoid component is too superior, you can have increased notching, which I know for that I've seen that um, asked uh, different times on, um, on exams. We know that inferior positioning of the glenoid is going to help decrease the amount of notching that you have, and it's going to give more clearance between the greater tuberosity and the acromial arch, as well as if you have an inferior tilt of the uh, glenoid component. So one was just a position. Uh, up and down. And then the other one is, is if you tilt it inferiorly a little bit, this also helps decrease notching. So on the contrary, if you have a superiorly placed glenoid component and it is tilted up, that is going to increase uh, the amount of uh, notching versus if you have the opposite, your glenoid component is a little inferior and you have an inferior tilt that is going to decrease notching. Now, what, you know, when we're looking at reverse total short orthoplasties, what do these lateralized glenoid um, designs do kind of in regards, again, to these reverse shoulder arthroplasties? So one, like you just said, they're going to decrease the notching. Uh, they're going to give some better uh, range of motion without impingement. Uh, and then uh, what they are doing is as you bring the humerus out lateral, you're going to improve the deltoid and posterior cuff tensioning so you can create a more stable component uh, inherently and help the deltoid function because it has greater tension on it already. The downside uh, to it is as you lateralize the glenoid component, you're increasing the lever arm that that glenoid component is going to function on and it can uh, have an increased risk of implant instability and implant loosening. So uh, that's uh, really the major downside to it uh, is you have to make sure that you have a very well-fixed glenoid before you consider doing a, a lateral uh, uh, offset or a lateralized uh, glenoid design. Um, and what is the... Uh, in the immediate post-op period. So we've completed our total shoulder. Uh, it looks good. What sort of uh, function do you want these patients to avoid in the early post-op period? 
Yeah, you definitely want them to avoid external rotation, especially if you did a subscap repair. And like we were mentioning a little bit earlier, when you're doing your exposure, there are different ways to get all the way down to the shoulder joint um, and the different ways to manage the subscapularis when you're doing that approach. Some people will do a uh, tenotomy where you just tenotomize, take the, you know, just take the, uh, uh, cut the tendon and repair at the end versus some people will uh, will actually do a, a uh, osteotomy of the lesser tuberosity and remove a piece of bone and repair that at the end. So either or you want to limit external rotation because that's going to put stress on that subscapularis. Okay. So you definitely want to limit external rotation in the immediate post-op period after a reverse or even after a total shoulder arthroplasty. Now talking a little bit more about, you know, post-op, things that can happen, uh, what's a, a common mechanism for anterior shoulder dislocation after you have a reverse shoulder arthroplasty performed? And that is the position of pushing up from a chair. Um, yep. It's similar to the, uh, how you want to avoid like the flexion and internal rotation in a patient who just had a posterior total hip done. Uh, that pushing up from a chair because of that shoulder hyperextension and external rotation that humeral head will lever off uh, posteriorly and cause an anterior uh, shoulder dislocation. Um, for those who haven't done a reverse yet or have only seen a few and are still kind of learning the procedure, uh, that is once you have your components in, whether they're trialed or the final components, you always trial them or you bring the patients through a range of motion to make sure there's no gross instability. So one of the range of motion is gonna be kind of up overhead so that they can reach the top of their head, but you're also going to extend them and internally and externally rotate their shoulder to make sure that they are inherently stable with shoulder hyperextension and prevent that pushing up from a chair dislocation position. Uh, and then uh, now that we've kind of beat up uh, reverse and total shoulder arthroplasty. Let's uh, move down to the elbow here. And uh, what are some of the common elbow disorders that we see in athletes? Yeah. So, you know, these common things are one is tennis elbow or lateral epicondylitis. That's where you have pain right over the lateral side, most commonly affect your ECRB um, tendon. And these patients will have lateral pain right over the epicondyle, especially pain when they're, when you, um, maximally flex the wrist and you have them extend their wrist and that because that causes a uh, pull right on that where those extensors attach the other side is going to be golfer's elbow or medial epicondylitis which is actually what i have um and it's tendon and pain right around the uh, medial epicondyle it's golfing um, too much yeah i know right uh and i don't even golf that's the crazy part about it <laughs> uh, you know i've had injections and all types of stuff man this stuff hurts but anyways, long, long story short, you have medial epicondylitis. You can have an MCL strain or rupture. And one of the things we were talking about a little bit earlier that, that is common in our um, that is common in our throwing athletes is, is uh, MCL strains and ruptures, which can be seen for a variety of reasons. Um, but that's one thing to know that's, that is definitely seen, um, as well as a valgus extension overload, uh, where you have pitcher's elbow. Um, so that can be seen and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you'll see some changes in maybe the radio capitellar joint because of that, that, that valgus, um, uh, moment on, on the elbow, um, that can be seen, especially with these prolonged, um, 
pitching. Uh, you can also have LUCL injuries. So say, for example, or LUCL is lateral ulnar collateral um, ligament injury. So you can see those distal biceps avulsions as well as tricep structures. These are common things that you can see in athletes that you um, just want to have on your list of differential diagnoses. Um, uh, starting with the most discussed uh, MCL rupture, what components of the MCL, AKA, um, what are what are the components of the MCL, also known as the ulnar collateral ligament? The uh, several components of it. One is extremely important. The other two, not so much. The extremely important one and the one to remember is uh, the anterior band is the strongest and most important valgus stabilizer from 30 to 120 degrees of flexion. Uh, it runs from the uh, medial epicondyle to the sublime tubercle and the sublime tubercle for those who want to really impress uh, those around them is two point on average 2.8 millimeters distal to the coronoid tip uh, on the medial surface of the proximal ulna and it has a mean length of 54 millimeters that is uh, important to know for those who go into sports and do Tommy John surgery and they are recon that is essentially what they are reconstructing is that anterior band of the uh, MCL the, it does the anterior band in itself also has anterior and posterior bands uh, the anterior band is essentially isometric with motion whereas the posterior band becomes more tight in flexion uh, the overall posterior band of the MCL. So not the posterior portion of the anterior part, but the actual posterior band is the uh, portion of the MCL that undergoes the most change in length with elbow motion. So obviously it's a posterior structure. So posterior structures, when you flex a joint are going to become more tight. So the posterior band of the MCL is tighter in flexion and looser in extension. And then there's the uh, transverse band of the MCL, which uh, really doesn't have a lot of uh, stabilizing uh, function, um, but is really there for uh, kind of serving as either an attachment point or uh, other stabilizing point for the joint capsule and, and structures around the uh, elbow on the medial aspect. So uh, key points to remember the anterior band is the most important valgus stabilizer from 30 to 120 degrees of flexion. They will test on that at some point during your five years taking the OITE. Um, and what are some of the common tests to diagnose the ulnar collateral or the medial collateral ligament? Yeah, so one is going to be this milking maneuver, which I which I had to look up. I was I hadn't heard it called the milking maneuver before, but that and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it's when you had to have the uh, forearm supinated, and for what I read, you kind of pull on the thumb, you're taking them through a, a range of motion, and you are essentially providing a valgus stress um, to the elbow, and you're seeing they have pain. Um, you know, like right around the medial epicondyle, right around that UCL region, and also moving valgus stress, where you apply a valgus stress to a supinated form, and you um, and you take them through a range of motion, and if they you know have pain with uh, with that you know 
that's going to be positive because they both uh, placed the elbow in a throwing position and they stressed the UCL uh, by pulling the thumb posteriorly and putting a valgus stress. So, um, yeah, they're very, they're very similar. It's not a, it, it's not a very, they're not very different tests by any means. The moving valgus one is the most common test done. And that's just like you described, you're standing behind the patient. Um, They're in a throwing position. So abduction to 90, elbow flexed at 90, and you're basically pulling their thumb back behind them uh, to create that kind of late cocking position. And then you're moving the shoulder through that 30 to 120 degrees of flexion, and that will cause pain for them. Mm, mm. A good, good exam right there. I, I, um, I, I, I know my attendees have asked that, like, I go in a room and come out and say, oh, I think I have UCL, but do they have a positive valgus? And I never heard that before. I was like, God, oh, I mean, I don't know. I, I gave a valgus strap, I, I moved their arm. <laughs> <laughs> and I, the arm. I don't know if that's what you consider a valgus movement stress test, but I did it. <laughs> oh man. But um uh, so um yeah, those are some of the those common uh tests for the UCL. Uh, and what what imaging studies are typically uh, obtained for UCL injuries? Uh obviously we're gonna start off with radiographs. You may see a widened medial ulnar ulnohumeral articulation or a bony avulsion. Uh way back in the trauma section when we were talking about elbow x-rays, uh I talked about that kind of river-like sign that you can see from the ulnohumeral over to the radiocapitellar articulation. That should be the same space all the way throughout. But with an MCL rupture, you may see widening of that medial joint space. And then obviously an MR arthrogram is definitely more sensitive and more specific than a traditional MRI. And it's one that's going to give you the best visualization of a uh, avulsed or ruptured uh, MCL. Uh, so what's the treatment for these? Yeah, so at first, you know, everything's going to be kind of conservative, um, you know, unless you just have like a an acute, you know, event where you have a rupture of the MCL and like a medial condyle fracture, you may go in and, and fix that and and um and repair the MCL. But typically, you know, any partial avulsions or anything is going to be treated non-operatively first. You may have them in, um, you know, a hinged elbow brace, do some activity modification, and have them in physical therapy and see how they do. Um, but you know, in these ruptures, you know, say you may have a rupture in an adult. Um, these can be treated surgically with kind of UCL reconstruction or, or that Tommy John surgery. I think that Dr. Dr. Job over in um, Los Angeles where the Colonel and Job Institute is uh, named after him over in, in LA where they have a sports medicine fellowship. Um, he's the one that kind of popularized this on the, on the baseball player, Tommy John. I forget what year, but years ago, and he returned back to play and did a great job. Um, but again, this is this UCL reconstruction and 90 return to uh, level play. And, um, and uh, this is kind of where you can use uh, Paul Maris longest autograph. So if you bring your thumb to your middle fingers, not everybody has a Paul Maris longest, but the ones that do, you can take a piece of that, uh, that and use it as an autograph as a gracilis or versus an allograft. And when you look at um, when you look at the pronator mass, um, uh, 
uh, on, and you're talking kind of about the surgical techniques, you know, splitting that kind of flexor pronator uh, can be better than actually releasing the entire flexor uh, flexor mass off. And, um, and then we have, you know, something in here about humeral docking. I'm not 100% sure um, what we're referring to there. I don't know if you, if you, you want to expand on, you know, humeral docking when we're talking about this Tommy John surgery. Yeah, so, uh, and this was a, a OIT test question, I think three years ago, um, was talking about the difference between humeral docking versus the traditional figure of a procedure. And what uh, this docking is, is basically um, you're putting the autograph into a tunnel uh, or into like a kind of a larger docking site for it. And then you're tying suture across the top. Uh, uh, I mean, a quick Google search will give you like a perfect image of it. Whereas the sutures are the only thing uh, traveling through the bone. Whereas your uh, blind ended tunnel at the humerus is the docking site for the autograft. Whereas the figure of eight actually passes the entire tendon through the bone and back and can place a lot of excess uh, shearing forces on the tendon. So humeral docking has been shown to be a superior fixation technique compared to the traditional figure of eight graph, graph that was originally described. Ah, yeah, I'm looking at uh, images now on uh, on good old fashioned Google, and yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah, so the, um, basically, uh, that interference screw um, in the ulna with the docking technique on the humerus is what's going to give you essentially the same strength of the uh, normal uh, MCL. Yeah, awesome, and um, and I guess moving forward. Uh, we talked a little bit about lateral epicondylitis. Uh, what muscles are involved in lateral epicondylitis and what are some clinical tests to diagnose it? Uh, so lateral epicondylitis is kind of the bane of existence for any freshly out of fellowship uh, hand or upper extremity surgeons because that is what their clinics tend to be filled with. <laughs> That's what our <laughs> brand new hand surgeon back in Fresno saw all the time was lateral epicondylitis. And it's because his more senior partners didn't want to deal with it anymore. <laughs> of course um, but it is a pain over the, obviously the lateral distal uh, humeral epicondyle. Uh, it's at the insertion point of the ECRB and the ECRB, quick anatomy talk, it originates on the lateral epicondyle and it inserts on the base of the third metacarpal, so the metacarpal of the long finger. And uh, they are going to uh, have pain with resisted wrist extension. And the reason why they call it tennis elbow is because that backhand motion in tennis is what causes that resisted wrist extension sort of uh, pain. Um, and then they'll have pain with direct palpation over the lateral epicondyle. And uh, the last physical exam maneuver you can do is just maximally flex the wrist and put as much tension on the ECRB to cause stretch over that uh, insertion on the proximal humerus. And I think that 
most commonly uh, tested part of it is what is the histologic finding associated with lateral chondroitis? Yeah, and this is a uh, perfect pimp question, and, and my attending asked me this uh, when I was doing a uh, one of those, you know, we're operating on a lateral epicondylitis and you know doing debridement and whatnot. And she's like, oh yeah, what's the uh, what's the classic histological findings associated with this? And I was like, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> in the back of my head, that was what I was thinking. But apparently, it was a high yield thing, and they asked us on the test questions, so it's going to be disorganized collagen with angiofibroblastic dysplasia. And uh, they were just harping on the angiofibroblastic dysplasia part of it. So that is the classic histological finding associated with lateral epicondylitis. And uh, and I think with with that, I think we have finished our our sports uh, our OIT sports review. And uh, I mean, we covered a lot. We talked we talked about hip, knee, concussions, uh, uh, stingers, you know, CTE, shoulder arthroplasty, and ACLs, PCLs, and I mean, I think we covered a good amount yeah. with, this, with this sports talk. Yeah, I mean, this was, I wish I, man, I wish I had something like this when I was going through residency, just to listen to, like, to and from work and all of that, because uh, it's it definitely uh, it covers all the stuff that you're going to be asked, for sure, and so, not to toot our own horn, but I think that, uh, <laughs> that this is definitely something, like, I didn't have this, uh, going through residency i mean uh so i've i would find it very useful to listen to so uh, i hope everybody out there listening does find it useful if you guys have any uh suggestions or uh topics that you think we either covered uh, only a superficial part of it and you wanted a little bit deeper dive into it or you felt like we missed something then uh shout out to us i mean uh and we'll we'll definitely make an effort to, to, uh, make this and improve this better. So, uh, yeah, but overall, I think it's going well. Oh yeah. And, uh, we tune in next time. We'll get started on everybody's favorite section. We'll get some uh, basic science done and, and get that out the way. <laughs> yeah. So for those of you that have uh, difficulty sleeping, just put that on. You don't need any melatonin, Benadryl. No, no, no. Just put on this basic science podcast and we'll get you to sleep for sure <laughs> exactly all right all man well this was good yeah it was a good one um and uh we'll be back again soon